and welcome to Ipsa Dixit, a podcast on legal scholarship. I'm your host, Brian L. Fry, Spears Gilbert Associate Professor of Law at the University of Kentucky College of Law. My guest is Ryan Mosley, a new attorney at Pillersdorf de Rosset and Lane in Prestonburg, Kentucky. We will discuss the basics of Social Security and administrative hearings. So welcome to the podcast, Ryan. Thank you, Brian, and I hope you're doing well. Yeah, so I got to start by saying congratulations. I know you recently passed the bar and are going to be sworn in very shortly. So that's just really fantastic. Yeah, it's a a huge relief to say the least. I'm sure you remember the feeling some time ago and it feels great. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I know you've been doing some some great work in the Social Security area for, for a while now. Uh, and I was wondering if you could start by just introducing listeners who may not be familiar with the Social Security Administration and how, how hearings work. Sort of what is a Social Security Administrative hearing and what kinds of questions are they primarily addressing? Sure. Uh, well, first I'll say that one of the interesting uh, things we discovered when I was working under my boss uh, this past year as a clerk is that you don't actually have to be a licensed attorney to represent someone in a Social Security hearing. Uh, there are lots of people out there at various uh, low-income clinics, for example, and lots of people who work for attorneys who are their staff who represent people as non-attorney representatives in hearings. And so I actually got the opportunity to do that working under my boss for the past year. And I've done roughly about 10 or so uh, social security hearings. But a social security hearing is essentially uh, a pretty self-explanatory thing. It's a hearing used to determine whether or not an applicant or a current beneficiary in some circumstances is entitled to social security disability, or SSI benefits. There's an administrative law judge. Uh, there is a what we will get into a little bit later in the podcast, a vocational expert who testifies at the hearing. And uh, your client will always testify. And you are there essentially to uh, ask him almost as if a direct examination questions about his impairments, his or her impairments. So what's the difference between SSD and SSI? Who's entitled to each one of those kinds of benefits and why? To put it very basically, um, because I am new to this field, uh, SSD is a disability system that everyone who works pays into. You'll get that drawn out of your paycheck or your taxes in some way. And There is a calculation using a complicated formula that I'm not totally certain of how it works, uh, but the administration will tell you what's called the date last insured. And it's based upon how long you worked, how much you paid in, and some other factors. And as long as you make a claim for Social Security disability prior to the lapsing of your date last insured, and you are disabled prior to that date, you can draw Social Security disability, which is a much more generous benefit system and something that anybody, regardless of their other income, can get as long as they are applying before their date last insured lapsed. SSI is basically a government benefit system for low-income persons. And actually, even if you are disabled, if you have a lot of assets or if you have 
I believe the number is over $2,000 in the bank account, for example, you cannot get SSI. So SSI is a benefit system for low-income, low-asset folks who are disabled and have really no other means of getting income. So would some people potentially be entitled to to both? And what does the I in SSI stand for? I believe it's income. I think it's just income, literally. Mm-hmm. Okay, okay, okay. And, and like I said, um, could, could somebody potentially be entitled to both disability benefits and income benefits if they're extremely low income? I believe they can, yes, but there is a cap on the number of a total number of dollars that you can draw. Uh, which is set for different individuals, but there is a cap. But yes, I do believe people are sometimes entitled to both, and you can apply for both at the same time. Okay, okay. And so you said maybe we can start by talking about about disability because it seems like in some ways that might be the more the more complicated uh, form form of hearing. Um, you said there were two requirements, like a timing requirement, and it sounds like kind of a substantive requirement, like you have to prove that you're actually disabled? Is, is that right? Well, the hearings for SSI and SSD are actually essentially the same. Um, but there, uh, yes, there is a timing requirement with disability. And this is a problem we run into sometimes with uh, folks who maybe were drawing benefits at one point in time and lost those benefits either through an agency redetermination or a CDR and who are reapplying for new benefits. Um Essentially, the timing requirement is like I talked about. It's a complicated formula based upon how much you worked, how much you paid in over time. And at some point, there's a line drawn. Social Security determines it, and it's called your date last insured. Uh, And essentially, in order to qualify for Social Security disability, you you have to meet a qualifying disabling condition or uh, be unable to make what they call substantial gainful or do sorry substantial gainful activity prior to that date last insured, and if you don't qualify prior to your date last insured, then you cannot draw Social Security disability. Okay, so what kind of conditions would qualify someone for for disability coverage? Like, what would count as a disability, and how is the disability requirement different, if at all, from the substantial gainful uh, activity requirement? Uh, they're not different in the sense that they are related and work with each other. Um, so there are certain conditions that are totally disabling, and I'm not going to list any of them. They're called, I believe Social Security refers to them as paragraph C criteria. Very rarely do you run into a case where someone meets that condition. I, I think those are folks who have just severe mental illness to the point that they're catatonic, or maybe they're just completely uh, paralyzed, for example. Uh, those are rarer cases. More often, you run into people who have what Social Security calls a serious mental or physical impairment. And in order to qualify for disability, that mental or physical impairment, be it a bad back, a slipped disc, or severe depression and anxiety, has to make it unable for them to engage in substantial gainful activity in some form of competitive employment in the national economy. And substantial gainful activity is defined by Social Security as activity that is both gainful 
and substantial. (laughs) And there's a number of regulations on that. I won't go too deep into the definitions of those because I always find myself as a new practitioner uh, looking at them right before hearing anyway. What Mm -hmm. I will advise uh, potential applicants and other new folks in this area of law is to look for if your claimant, if the person you're representing is currently working some kind of full-time job, odds are they are engaging in substantial gainful activity. And if they are, they will lose their hearing at the first step. Uh, Mm -hmm. They will just say, you're doing substantial gainful activity. You're making $12 or $15 an hour, 40, 50 hours a week at this job. Therefore, you're not disabled. That is something that can happen and does happen. Okay. Okay. So even if someone has a condition that would qualify as a disability, if they're, if they're basically, if they have a job that's paying any reasonable amount of money, then they're going to be absolutely disqualified from disability benefits. Essentially. Yes. If you're engaging in substantial gainful activity, you will almost always lose at the first step. Uh, And you could have been doing that in the past and not be doing it anymore and then you would still be okay to apply for benefits. It's not that if you've ever had a job, you can't get disability, obviously, but if you are currently engaging in substantial gainful activity, then you you will not qualify. Okay, so how does an applicant prove that they have a qualifying disability? You have to provide medical evidence from an actual medical professional. You can't just show up and testify and say, I have a bad back or I have depression and anxiety. You will actually have to go and see a medical professional. Social Security will actually, in almost all cases, provide the opportunity to go see what they call a consultative examiner. And they will send you to a doctor. And if you don't go, they'll send you notices and and numbers to call. And I would advise anyone applying for Social Security to definitely go to those appointments because it is immensely helpful to an administrative law judge in determining if you have a qualifying impairment or not. Uh, other people, other records that are good, though, you know, I advise all of my claimants to bring me all of the records they can from any treating physicians, uh, MRIs, X-rays, any sort of medical source. Uh, notes from psychiatrists are okay. Uh, anything from a treating medical source is great for a claimant to submit to Social Security because you have to use actual medical sources to prove that you have an impairment. So if I understand it correctly, then if you're an applicant for disability, you have to go have an appointment or one or more appointments with a physician chosen by the Social Security Administration, but you can also bring your own evidence of disability to supplement your uh, to supplement your claim. Is that is that right? I would say honestly, if you're looking to win your claim, the bulk of the records would be provided by the claimant. They will be records from your medical history, as many as you can provide. And then you have, on top of that, Social Security will send you to the consultative examiners. And sometimes it's for mental, sometimes it's for physical impairments. Uh, But the bulk of your records should come from the claimant themselves if you want to have a really good chance to win. What what happens if the claimant disagrees with the evaluation of the Social Security Administration's required 
um, examiner. Like either the examiner says they're not disabled or maybe doesn't recognize all of the disabilities or doesn't recognize the disabilities in the way that they want them to be recognized for the purpose of the hearing. That does happen. And essentially that is where your non-attorney representative or your attorney has to make arguments for you at the hearing. Uh, And what you're looking for in that instance would be the consultative examiner's opinion would be inconsistent with the rest of the medical record. And you would articulate that argument to the ALJ and ask that that uh, consultative examiner's opinion be accorded less weight than the treating physicians of your claimant or the other medical sources in the file. And that does happen sometimes. Sometimes the consultative examiners are accorded great weight or more weight than some of the sources you provide. Typically, treating physicians are accorded good weight uh, as long as they are consistent with the remainder of the medical record. So what is an ALJ and and what role do they play in a hearing? They are the finder of fact. They are the ones who will ultimately make a determination if you qualify for benefits under the regulations. Their roles are somewhat determined by the ALJ themselves. Some ALJs uh, will look at you and say, do you waive preliminary reading of the requirements? And you almost always say yes. And then they will say, okay, counselor, ask questions. And then it's up to you to build the record and ask your client all the questions. Some ALJs prefer to ask the claimant questions themselves, and they'll just ask questions to the claimant for 20 or 30 minutes and then leave it to you to fill in any gaps. So they're both finders of fact and they ultimately uh, are the final adjudicators of the claim. If you disagree with their opinion, you are free to appeal that to the Social Security Appeals Council, uh, which can take a lot of time and doesn't have a, like, like most appeals, doesn't have a very high rate of overturning decisions. And then if you disagree with the Appeals Council, you are free to file in federal court or go and file a new claim for Social Security benefits. Okay, so an ALJ or administrative law judge, as I understand it, is basically an employee of the Social Security Administration. How are they different from judges like we think of them in like a more traditional court? Are they are they lawyers? And do they have the same roles and responsibilities as judges in other courts? I think they have essentially the same rules and responsibilities. Uh, I mean, they're, if, if you're familiar with any kind of administrative law judge, they are essentially like that. They're very fair, kind people. I've not met any that I have any real disagreements with. Uh, and uh, essentially, they're, they operate like a judge. I don't believe they are Article Three judges, although I don't want to get into a, a long Fed courts argument in this podcast. <laughs> but but yeah. uh, essentially, they are the finders of fact, and they will adjudicate the claim and determine whether or not your claimant meets the requirements. Do you find that the outcome of the claim in your experience and from what you've heard from other experienced attorneys can be affected by which ALJ you get? In other words, are are some ALJs more or less sympathetic to disability claims presented by by claimants? 
I don't know if more or less sympathetic is the way that I would put it. Some ALJs have a higher approval rating than others, and some have a lower approval rating than others. Um, There are some very experienced Social Security attorneys who may be a little bit cynical and will tell you that it basically comes down to which judge you get. I tend not to believe that. Uh, I think you can win a claim in front of any judge as long as you present it strongly. But there are some that have higher and some that have lower approval ratings for whatever reason. That's just the way it's worked out. So, Ryan, from a claimant's perspective, um, as I understand it anyway, a claimant in theory can go into a hearing by by themselves. In your experience and understanding – does having representation either by a non-attorney representative or by an attorney uh, have an effect on the outcomes of Social Security hearings? You know, I don't have any statistics on that in front of me, but from an almost common sense standpoint, I would say yes, most definitely. Um, and, the, and the big reason why is because of the role of the vocational expert. I, I think a lot of claimants are capable. Well, uh, there are claimants who are capable of going in there. They have enough medical records. They have enough to go in there and essentially be awarded benefits. But one thing you have to understand is if you are already at the administrative hearing stage, you have been denied by Social Security at least two times at that point uh, in your initial application. You haven't been denied, denied by a judge necessarily but you have been denied by the agency. And at that point, I would advise anyone to seek an attorney or a representative, especially because of the role of the vocational expert. Uh, and and I'll, I'll get into that now, if that's okay. Oh, okay. Yeah. I mean, maybe you could just clarify that because I was, so basically when you apply for, for disability, then in some cases you, they might, the administration might just grant your claim without a hearing. So what you're saying is that there's only a hearing if there's some initial concern on the agency's part about the legitimacy of your claim? Uh, I wouldn't know if it's, I wouldn't say it's a concern about the legitimacy. It's more that it's your right to ask for a hearing. And so you are, you apply and it essentially goes to someone who is an employee of Social Security who is looking at your application, looking at the record and making a determination. And if they deny you, you can ask for reconsideration. And then if you are once again denied by an employee of Social Security upon reconsideration, then you have the right to ask for a hearing. Right, right. Okay. So so I think I understand better Then it's like sort of you, you – you, if you need a hearing, you should be aware that you need to sort of provide more substantiating material. And so kind of having representation might be helpful in ensuring that the administration understands the nature of your claim. Right. Or maybe you're just a borderline case. Uh, a lot of cases are what I call borderline cases. It's it's folks who have serious impairments, but maybe the agency doesn't find them serious enough. And you need a hearing so that your claimant can articulate specifically why that impairment is so troublesome to them. Um, And again, I think the key to having representation at the hearing is the ever so important cross-examination of a vocational expert. Okay, so what is a vocational expert and and what role do they play? They play an enormous role. Uh, vocational experts are folks who have either through their career or through academics 
essentially become experts in the economy and not just the economy because they're not economists uh, or we would call them that. Uh, they are folks who are particularly skilled in understanding uh, the Department of Labor's definitions of jobs and the numbers of jobs that exist in the national economy. They keep a great eye on uh, the job market, for lack of a better word, but more or less the jobs economy. And they will testify in a hearing, most hearings, uh, at the end of the hearing, the ALJ will ask them to do a few things. The first thing will be to define the claimant's past work, if they have any, and whether or not that work is uh, of a heavy classification, of a light classification, of a skilled level, because skills matter in Social Security applications, whether or not your past employment is skilled and whether or not uh, you have an education or a skill that can transfer. And that's the first thing they will do. And then the ALJ will ask them, can that be, uh, can the claimant go back to that past employment based upon what you've heard? And most of the time they will say no. And then they will ask the vocational expert, are there other jobs in the national economy that a claimant, a hypothetical claimant uh, with the age experience and past work history of this claimant could perform? And sometimes they will list uh, additional limitations based upon the disabilities that you are claiming. And at that point, uh, once the ALJ is finished questioning the vocational expert, the attorney or the non-attorney representative has the opportunity to cross-examine that vocational expert. And this is where you can win or lose a case in most instances. So how does that work? I mean, describe that to me. Like, why is the cross-examination so important? And what do you think the most important considerations to take into consideration when doing a cross-examination are? You have to find whatever it is about your particular claimant's disability, be it mental or physical, find whatever it is that is special to your individual that would make it impossible for, to, for them to do those jobs that your uh, vocational expert has testified that they can do. So let's say, for example, you have a claimant who uh, is limited to what Social Security calls light work, um, which is a broad classification. Essentially, it's jobs that don't require a lot of heavy lifting, uh, don't necessarily have a lot of wear and tear, usually are simple routine tasks. Uh, but you're standing for part of the day or you're, you're sitting for part of the day. And let's say that the ALJ has asked the vocational expert, assume a hypothetical individual, uh, the claimant's age, experience, et cetera, is limited to light work. Are there jobs in the national economy? And they say, yes, there's mail sorter or nut and bolt assembler. And there are 50,000 jobs in the national economy that they can do. And let's say that your claimant is medically prescribed uh, a cane or a walker. And you could then ask that vocational expert, could that hypothetical individual still perform that job if they required the use of a cane eight hours a day? And the vocational expert may say no. And at that point, if the ALJ accepts that testimony, you have eliminated those jobs via cross-examination. One of the keys, I think, in a lot of what we call the borderline cases is you're looking for... Um, things that are total impairments. So often in cases where folks have severe depression and anxiety, for example, uh, they are off task. That is a, a, a vocationally acceptable term to Social Security, off task. And if you have severe depression and anxiety, you may spend 
25 to 30% of your day thinking about uh, things that are not related to the simple routine task that is in front of you. And so let's say you are at the point of cross-examining the vocational expert and you say, could a hypothetical individual of the claimant's age, education, work experience, limited to light work, still perform the jobs you have listed if they are off task 25% of the time? Could they still maintain competitive employment? And almost all vocational experts will have to say no, because obviously you can't hold a competitive job if you don't do it a quarter of every day, right? And that's where understanding your particular claimant's disabilities come in. Sometimes it's not that simple. Sometimes your claimant has severe arthritis in one of their hands. And so you'll ask the vocational expert if they could still be a mail sorter or nut and bolt assembler or whatever job they list if they have severe arthritis and could only uh, occasionally or never handle feel and finger objects, for example. Um, things you eliminate a lot of jobs with often with people who have severe back injuries and leg problems are that your claimant could never climb stairs, scaffolds, ropes, or ladders. That eliminates quite a lot of jobs right there. Mm-hmm. Um, and so those are the things that you get into when you cross-examine a vocational expert. What other kinds of things would count as a limitation? I mean, what about like, say, geographical limitations. I mean, you know, you're saying that a vocational expert would say, well, there's 50,000 jobs in the national economy, but but what if they're all a long way away? Does does that matter? Does not matter. And uh, if you ask me, I'm not sure that that's the way it should be, but uh, I am not a congressman. And I advise you, if you don't like that, to write your congressman, because I think they're probably the only ones who could change that. But no, that does not matter. That's a good question. That comes up a lot. I live in an area where there are not many jobs, Brian, uh, but it does not matter at all. Yeah, I mean, that just seems kind of perverse to say to someone that, you know, it's theoretically possible that you could do a job that doesn't exist anywhere near where you actually live. I mean, do we really expect people to pick up and move like that? I think for the purposes of their application for disability benefits, the agency uh, essentially does, yes. Wow. Wow. So in our previous conversation, you mentioned something called grid rules. Can you talk about what those are and and why they matter in a social security uh, hearing context? Yes. Anyone going in to represent someone in a social security hearing, the first thing you should do is Google social security regulation grid rules uh, and read those grid rules and understand them because they will frame the entire claim. And essentially what the grid rules are, they are based upon, number one, age, number two, the classification of work that an AOJ will determine you are limited to, be it light, sedentary, medium, heavy, or very heavy, which are all defined in the regulations, and I won't get into the specifics of those, but most claimants wind up at light or sedentary if they're going to qualify, Um, and uh, and education. Education is, is key to the grid rules also. Uh, And so, for example, uh, grid rules divide age groups essentially into three age groups. There are younger individuals who are folks who are um, usually less than 50 years old. And there may be a subclassification for even younger people. But essentially, 50 years old is kind of the beginning of the magic numbers. Uh, 50 to age 54 is what's considered approaching advanced age and age 55 is what's considered advanced age. 
And a lot of my claimants who lose and we go to the appeals council will often be kind of frustrated because they'll say all they talked about was my age and education and this opinion. And I always explain to them that that's kind of the way the entire claim is set up. Uh, the grid rules kind of make it to where ALJs have to adjudicate based on that. And the reason for that is, for example, let's say you're age 53 and you are severely disabled via a back impairment or a foot impairment to the degree that you would be limited to what Social Security calls sedentary work, meaning you'll be sitting the vast majority of the day. You won't be lifting anything heavy. Well, if you have a limited education, uh, less, I think, less than high school, uh, you will automatically qualify via the grid rules if you are limited to sedentary, age 53 with a limited education. Uh, the ALJ will, if they determine that at some point in the hearing, may not even get to the vocational expert. And that's happened to me before. They'll just stop the hearing and say, I'm going to grid this person as to their uh, 50th or 51st birthday, however they want to do it. Mm. Uh, if you're a person of advanced age and you're limited to light work uh, and you have a limited education, then you will grid, for example. And sometimes uh, previous adverse adjudications can come in handy. Uh, because uh, Social Security applies res judicata to previous ALJ determinations of your impairment. So if say let's say you're 54 and you lose your Social Security application because they determine you were limited to light work, you had a limited education, you're 54, you didn't grid, and they determined you could do some other job in the national economy. Well, when you turn 55, you will grid as long as uh, the medical records don't establish that you've made some sort of miraculous recovery. Mm-hmm. And, and so that's why I think understanding the grid rules are, are, is very important for anyone who's going to represent someone in a social security claim, because often what I will do in, in opening statement, if they'll allow me to make a brief one is I'll just spell it out and say, I believe my claimant is limited to sedentary work. They are a person closely approaching advanced age. They have a limited education and, I ask the agency to apply grid rule and then I'll cite whatever the actual rule number is. Wow. Yeah. So that sounds really fundamental to thinking about how to structure a claim. Oh, Ryan, this has been really fascinating and I've learned a ton about how, uh, about how social security hearings work. I, I wonder if in closing you could reflect on like whatever you think like the most important or most surprising thing that you've learned in representing uh, clients in or applicants in social security hearings might've been like, what should someone coming into this field know? I will say a few things. Maybe the most surprising um, has been how grateful social security clients are. Uh, Often I think clients in law can sometimes be, um, uh, thankless or maybe not as ecstatic about the outcome you can get for them as a lawyer. Uh, but social security clients, if you can win their benefits for them are almost always the most gracious people. Um, they are, are great people to represent. And it's why I enjoy doing that type of work. I really like my clients. Um, but the thing that was most surprising is this stuff was way more complicated than I ever imagined it. Uh, I don't know. I mean, it's not something you, you don't take a law school class first semester on social security, or maybe you never take a law school class on social security. Uh, and maybe we don't think of it as, as being sophisticated as maybe going to federal court and suing for someone's civil rights. 
but it is every bit as sophisticated and as complicated as that. And, uh, I, you know, you really have to work hard and understand your particular claimant's case and understand these grid rules or, or you won't win. Well, that's so cool, Ryan. And, and thanks so much for the great work that you do and for helping people better understand how, how the administrative system works. Happy to do it, Brian. And thanks for having me on, man. You were one of the few persons ever to serve two terms as governor. What were some of the highlights of the happy Chandler administration? Ken, I built more roads for the people of the United States and all the governors put together since 1792, and all of them are free. I built interstates and paid for them with Eisenhower's nine-to-one money and the money that I got to match it, you understand. And the interstates are outstanding, but they're free. And I built country roads. I was the first governor in the history of Kentucky to build. The other fellows hadn't thought about it, but I was born on a country road. And I thought my one of my main obligations was to get the people of Kentucky out of the dust of summer and out of the mud of winter. I knew what it was to take a load of tobacco 10 miles from Cardin to Henderson in the early days. And bad roads. We had no roads at all. And we'd break through the ice-covered roads and take us a whole day and sometime more long enough to get 10 miles to take you to back of the market. And I made up mind I was going to build some farm-to-market roads so the farmers could... And before I left there, I almost had a hard-surface road all over Kentucky. And I was the first governor to have benefit of the farm people of Kentucky. I reorganized the government from top to bottom. We had 123 or 4 boards and commissions. I cut them to 22. 13 of which were required by the Constitution. And uh, it was very successful. We lived within our income. We balanced our budget. We took 10-day discounts on our bills. And when I finished in 1939, I had cash in the bank and no debts. 